candid conversations that might just change how you look at the world. Let's bridge cultures, transcend borders, and build a global family of change makers. Welcome to If By Chance. Kyle is a man with extraordinary energy. As a paramedic, he needs to be on when the tones go off. But he knows that his career won't last forever. During this conversation, Kyle shares how he's taken control and expanded his options while staying true to his need to serve. I'm a full-time paramedic. I've been in the healthcare field since 1998. That's something that I do on an every third day basis. That's the way our schedule is put out. I work 24 hours. I start work at 6 a.m. and get off at 6 a.m. the next day. So I just serve my community for the 24 hours that I'm on duty and then I get off and I'm off for two days and then I repeat. If it's every third day and you do the math, we only work 121 days a year ish. And that's without any vacations. You take some vacation time off or some other time, personal time off, you work less a year. So that leaves you a lot of free time. So a lot of us will actually go get another job at another department or a hospital. I've done that in the past. I'm also a respiratory therapist. That's where I started my career is in respiratory therapy. We deal with ventilators and asthma patients and COPD type of patients. And we're like a nurse for the lungs is kind of the respiratory therapy world. And then so when I was doing respiratory therapy, and doing paramedic at the same time, I would get off of the medic and I'd go to the hospital and I'd work for 12, 14 hours. So, so how are your sleep cycles? I've got a superpower. I can take a nap and be ready to go for another four or five hours. I My wife is baffled how I can do it. As I'm getting older, it's more consistent than it used to be. I try to do my best to sleep, try to get to bed by 10 or 11, and then I wake up five hours later, any, no matter what. It's just my clock is set on that. When I'm on the medic, the sleep cycles are, of course, sporadic. There's times when I've slept through the night. There's times when I've been up all night. So it's all over the place. <laughs> I joke around, but it's the truth. If my mouth isn't moving and my body sits still, I'll fall asleep. So driving is a lot of fun for me because <laughs> I'm typically not talking and I'm sitting still. So I have to listen to music, sing music. I have a superpower. If I stop and I shut my eyes, I can fall asleep. I'm sitting here feeling slightly jealous, I have to be honest. Oh, a lot of people are about how I can sleep and how I can fall asleep. And my wife jokes around with me. She's like, you were in mid-sentence. You were talking to me and telling me a story. And then all of a sudden I looked over and you're snoring. Mid-sentence, like you just stopped. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> so what about caffeine? Is that um, I try to stay away from it. I pretty much have a hard stop at four and I'm actually starting to crank that up closer to three, not having anything after 3 p.m. my time before because it'll carry over into the evening for me and then I can't get wound down. I'm wound anyhow. I'm a type A extrovert, so I'm always up typically. If I'm not up, then people are always like, is there something wrong with you? <laughs> like, no, I'm just quiet today. Like, I know you're not used to it, but. <laughs> so with the respiratory therapy, how did you end up there? I can see you more as a paramedic from what you're describing. Yeah, it's weird because so, I was a respiratory therapist yeah. first. Honestly, the way that that happened, I was going to the Ohio State University and I had no dis no clue what I wanted to do. By the time my sophomore year rolls around and they're like, hey, you need to figure out what your major is. And they were like, hey, go take this test. In the university college area, there's a computer and you go in and it's like an aptitude test and you just literally answer just random questions, right? Likes, dislikes, not even about jobs, some of it, right? And 
And then all of a sudden it spits out this list of things that you're compatible with. And one of the things on there was respiratory therapy. And I had no clue what it was. I'd never had asthma as a child. I'd never dealt with that. No, I never knew anything about ventilators, you know, nothing like that. It said that you've got this compatibility with this respiratory therapy. Oh, look at that. Ohio State has a respiratory therapy department and the respiratory therapy program. So I went, looked into that, applied for that. And at the same time, simultaneously, because just in case I didn't get into Ohio State, I applied for the community college locally that offered the same type of program. So of course, I wasn't the most stellar students at the time. So I didn't have the grades to get in of, to a one of 15 spot at Ohio State. So I got into the one of 35 spot at Columbus State. And so I kind of did it backwards. I went from a big university to a community college, got my respiratory therapy degree, and then started in the field. And I loved it. You know, like as soon as I got in my first clinical, that hands-on, that interaction, that adrenaline rush when the tones go off over, you know, code blue and you have to, and the therapists are always at the head of the airway and head of the patient that breathe for the patient. And sometimes we innovate and put the tube down their throat or we at least assist with it. That's kind of like our focus is all airway as a respiratory therapist. So, so it's more in a hospital setting. I was thinking. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Respiratory therapies, hospital setting. Uh, they do have some ancillaries, like there are respiratory therapists in like sleep labs. But for the most part, respiratory therapy is either some sort of hospital setting or acute care facility where they have to deal with ventilators on like an old folks home that has ventilators at it or a rehab center that has ventilators at it. The majority of our work is done in the critical care area. So like ICUs, step downs, level one trauma centers, regular ERs, you know, we'll, they'll put a therapist in the regular ER because there's so much stuff that people come in for breathing issues and stuff and BiPAP and CPAP and yeah. Yeah, that sounds more in line with being a paramedic. Did you just feel you weren't getting enough action? <laughs> Before I became a respiratory therapist, I went to Charlotte, North Carolina and fell in love with the area. So then I had to come back and start school. So I lived down in Charlotte for a whole summer with a friend of mine and their family. And I loved the area. So when I, I came back, went to school, two years, got my degree. When, as soon as I was done, I started looking into going back down to, to Charlotte to work in a hospital in Charlotte. So I went ahead and did that. That happened. And I was down there working and the person who showed me the hospital and showed me where the rooms were and the preceptor, you know, every new employee gets onboarded by an existing employee. Well, getting, he ended up going up to the flight team which was helicopters on top of the roof. He was a respiratory therapist who flew on an evac helicopter with a nurse. And I'm like, that's it. That's what I want to do, right? I'm like, that sounds awesome. So I started looking into that. He ended up having to go take what we call EMT basic school. At the time, we had three levels of paramedics, EMTB, EMTA, which is advanced, and EMTP, paramedic, which is the highest level. And there's one other level for critical care, but that's most paramedics that you see are just paramedic. So we ended up going to classes together to get that EMT basic licensure. And at the, near the end of that, I never took my test for it. Near the end of that, I needed to come back home for my own family. My mom was uh, really sick, got put in the hospital, and I needed to come home and help take care of her because I was the only medical person in our family. So dad and I did a full, we basically took care of my mom for two full years after I came back from Charlotte before she passed. So that got me a little bit of a bug in because I took EMT classes, right? And I always wanted to be on the helicopter. And in Columbus, Ohio, they do not put respiratory therapists on their helicopters. You have to be a paramedic. So I still, at the time, I wanted to be in, on the helicopter, right? And they wouldn't hire a respiratory therapist. So I was like, well, I got to go. If you want to win in Rome, go be a paramedic. So there was a program that allowed me to become a paramedic with my background of respiratory therapy because I had a lot of medical background. So I was able to audit the test, if you will. So I ended up uh, sitting there in the ER one day working and one of my nurses came up to me. She's like, hey, there's a bridge program that we as nurses and, param and respiratory therapists can go and become 
paramedics. Does that interest you? And I said, yeah, it does. And she's like, yeah, it interests me too. I've always wanted to be a paramedic. So we both set off to go take classes and she dipped out and I didn't. <laughs> and I became a paramedic. And then after that, uh, I'd worked both jobs for a little bit. And then I really liked paramedic schedule and I like the flow of it all. And I was already kind of an ICU critical care therapist. And that just transferred over nice and neatly to being a paramedic. A lot of people go the other way. They become a paramedic first and then they go into nursing or respiratory or PA or doctor. And I did everything backwards. <laughs> do you find you have to keep quite fit for your work? They'd like us to work out every day. I do enough on my off days that it takes care of my workouts per se. Um, I mean, I walk my dogs, I build, I do a lot of construction on my days off. So there's a lot involved with that. If I'm building a deck, if anybody out there has ever built a deck, you're always lifting and carrying and swinging. And you know, by the time you're done, you're like, man, I felt like I worked out. Well, yeah, you worked out for eight hours, you know, with just different muscle groups for the whole day. So it's not something where I'm not running a marathon, but that's my own choice because I've got bad knees and whatnot. But no, we have a lot of us that we have a couple of guys and gals that run the 4Ks and the 5Ks and, you know, the Iron, we've had two or three of our medics that went through Ironman and did the Ironman challenge. And yeah, so well, I would say we're as a whole, we're pretty fit in general. I think we have have to be a little bit to be able to lift patients and that kind of stuff. But could we be more fit? Maybe, you know, in general, like anybody. <laughs> so what's your favorite part of the job? Really, that's pretty loaded because there's, I'm really, really lucky. I really am. I, my wife is somewhat jealous because She's like, you always go to work in a good mood. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, because I like what I do, you know. So I love to help my community. I love to be a helper. It's proof when I came home from Charlotte and I helped my mom, I knew my purpose. I had to do some life-saving measures on my mother a couple of different times during that two years period, two, two and a half year period. And there was one time when I was driving her home from a, a little get together and she crashed on me. I had to pull out and do CPR on her. So it's one of those things where I knew my purpose way back then and it never really changed. It's moved laterally, maybe even stepped up a couple of places when I went back to work at the, as a respiratory therapist in a level one trauma center or something, maybe it stepped up a little bit. I've been put on this earth, in my opinion, is to serve my community. So, and that kind of still spills over to me serving my family, which spills over to me serving my friends. So if one thing that anybody would that knows me, and this is not me tooting my horn or being braggadocious at all, but I tend to kind of be a giver. And I want to help people. I want to help solve problems, whatever they are. Um, you know, respiratory distress, that's a problem. I want to try to solve it. Somebody who can't fix their front door because the hinges fell out or the, it became loose, that's a problem. I want to fix it. It's because I'm also a voiceover actor too. And I always think, okay, wh how am I solving problems with that? Well, I've been hired a few times to do voiceover stuff for very, very important things, right? Like for suicide prevention. I'm on the suicide prevention hotline in Georgia. That's my voice. And I'm like, there I am. I'm serving again. This is great. Okay, now I found my purpose there. I can still do the fun stuff and do the voices and do the character voices and do the e-learning. But every once in a while, something will roll across my desk that is 100% medical or some sort of public service announcement that I need to record for somebody or a company or what have you. Phone systems. I've been on a national commercial before. I've done character voices that were put in video games, nothing major yet, but small video games. And I've done a lot of e-learning for companies. So my voice has been heard by Nike, Amazon, Microsoft, all these big names that this one company hires me to do all of their education. And then they pump out that software to other companies to educate them on their software. So it's pretty cool. I'm still serving, right? I'm still, I'm still putting myself out there. I'm still doing 
things that provide a service for someone. So I guess that's why I do it. And what was the first step that you took to become a commercial voiceover? That was weird. So I've always been able to do like funny voices my whole entire life. And everybody thinks, oh, I can do all these voices. So I can be a voiceover actor because that's all they think of, right? They, they think that it's the characters, right? Or they think if it's the, the Chevy truck, you know, that guy, you know, <laughs> like the Chevy truck commercials, all that stuff. And that or that in a world, that kind of thing. <laughs> They think it's all that, but it's not. There's so much more to voiceover, right? And with AI, it's even getting worse because AI is getting so good. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, they don't even need me anymore. But nonetheless, I still think we're going to be better than AI always because we have the ability to inflect our voices a little bit different. I mean, they're getting good, but I think it'll still have a natural feel to like, I can always tell that something's a little computer generated, but it's getting better and better. And and there may be a day where where that's not possible. But the good thing is, When it comes to how I got started in that, I'm sitting with my laptop and I'm on Facebook and it says, have anybody ever told you you should be on radio? And I'm like, yes, I've had a lot of people tell me that I should be on radio. You know, I can even make it sound more radio like that. And just I'd have a little button that brings down that deep tone. And how are you doing on K101? You know, be stupid like that. Right. That's not voiceover. That's radio. That's different. But I said yes, but that was the hook question that got me into watching a seminar, which then got me into thinking about voiceover, which got me into interviewing 10 different coaches. And I ended up getting a coach and then I ended up investing in it instead of going back to college because I was dabbling and going back to get some sort of like nursing degree or something. Like, why would I want to be a nurse? I have no idea. I love nurses. I'm married to a nurse. I just don't want to be a nurse. (laughs) But that's exactly how I got started in voiceover. And was that quite a large investment? It really wasn't not not compared to going to school, like going back to school was like in that 20, 25 grand range. And I think I invested about I think I invested about 5,500 bucks in the beginning. Uh, don't get me wrong. I've gone up from there. I've, I've bought bigger mics. I've bought bigger interfaces. I've bought monitors. I've, I've built a studio. You know, I've, I basically the first year, two years in the business, I took everything I made and I just turned it right back into the business. So now I'm kind of set up and like I can only thing I really do now purchase wise is like, there's a couple of microphones out there. I still want. They're my, like, Oh, my dream microphones, but they're in the thousands. I'm sitting here listening to you. And basically what I'm hearing goes against what most of us are told when we're finishing up high school and we're thinking about what we want to do with our lives. And we're told to pick a path. And yet here you are doing all these things simultaneously. Would you have Told yourself something different when you were younger? Yeah. You know, my mom and dad, I'm the youngest of four. There were new parents, young parents, when my brothers and sisters were born. And then I'm, oops, here's Kyle eight years later. (laughs) Um, So it's one of those things where I have a different dad than my brothers and sisters did. It's the same guy. He's just a different dude, right? Just all the way different. Like, from discipline to expectations to all that. Both my mom and dad were both different people for me than they were for my brothers and sisters. By the time I was 10, I was an only child. So my other brothers and sisters were already out of the house. And this was in the seven, well, mid eighties. So it's one of those things where in my formative years, like 10, I was going through as a teenager, I was a lonely child for the most part. Yes, they were around every holidays and stuff like that, but they they didn't consistently live with us. So it's a little bit different. It's a whole different ballgame when everything you've got in your world as a parent is you can is not split up by four and you can put that information and what they've learned from the first three kids into the fourth kid. So my dad, he was an entrepreneur and he did, you know, he did in multiple things. I saw my mom and dad do multiple things throughout their life and their career 
career. Um, my mom was a working professional female in an all-male world and was tough as nails. Nobody messed with my mom. She was tough. And so I saw that. I saw my mom being a businesswoman. I saw my dad being an entrepreneur, businessman, or a construction worker, like whatever brought in the, the bacon, right? And so there was, when I got on enough to swing a hammer, he asked me to come out and start helping him with putting in windows and doors and building things. And so I started doing that. So early on, I was in football. I was in track. So early on, as I was growing up, we were always helping friends. But my dad was like, all right, here, can you come with me tonight? I'm like, why? What's up? Oh, Joe's bathtub or toilet broke and why well, got to fix it? He doesn't know how to fix it. It's midnight. I just need somebody to go with me. I'm like, yeah, I'll go. It was summertime or whatever. And I'd go with my dad. Right. So I kind of got looking back on it now. There was all kinds of paths that I could see people could take. My dad never had a nine to five. <laughs> you know, my mom, she was closer to a nine to five, but her nine to five traveled her around the world doing this, doing what she was doing. So I got to see a very, very eclectic version of what life could be. And I honestly think that's, and my mom and dad, they never pointed me in any major direction. They never denied me access to doing stuff on. When I was in high school, I went to Alaska for five and a half weeks. My high school took students to Alaska. You had to apply for it. You had to you know, write essays and get teachers to, to give you recommendations. And I was one of 32 students that got to go to Alaska, right? I was only 14 when that all that happened. That was one of the major things in my life that changed who I am was that trip to Alaska. Uh, some of my friends went and became marine biologists because of that trip or became horticulturists because of that trip. And we ended up taking a, a one of our leaders got sick. We had to make a, a stretcher. And we had to carry her through two and a half miles of tundra, right, to get to a safe area because we were in the middle of nowhere. We had to get her to a, a boat to take her down to the city so she could get health care. So there was things that happened in that trip that were just like, I need to write a book someday about it or at least get together with some of my friends that are still around that could help co-write that book because we saw some incredible things. We saw an airplane dropping that red dye on a fire, a forest fire. We saw bears and we just, it was, I mean, the stories are countless. So I think when I wanted to start a family and I got into the healthcare field and that just, it showed me something that I could do and I could sink my teeth into to be a server, if you will, or someone who provided for the community or for my fellow patients or my fellow man. But then even inside of that, I was a preceptor myself, so I could teach what I knew. So I'm an educator. So I've got all, even inside of this, I've got these other little areas that, okay, when I'm too weak to lift and carry a patient, guess what? I can go into teaching. I could go into recording audio scripts for medical stuff. So I don't see it as I just want to do something different. I'm not a jack of all trades, master of none. I've mastered a lot of stuff in my life, but I just don't know how to sit still. I'm ADHD. I'm type A. <laughs> Are you tattling your energy really well? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I had my bad days. This morning sucked. <laughs> and it's funny how a lot of us have those experiences as a teenager that just really show us, I think, what is possible. And you actually can see how things fit together. Because oftentimes when you're in a classroom and you don't actually have any real world experience or you haven't seen the subject matter that you're going to study, it doesn't right. make a sense for a lot of people. You know, my dad, when I came back from Alaska, I'll never forget what my dad said. Um, he goes, you know, when you called me from uh, from Alaska, that first time you called us because you were allowed, we were allowed to make phone calls. And back then it was just, it was collect calls. It wasn't cell phones. But he goes, I knew you had it figured out. He goes, when you said, dad, I just feel so small here. 
I don't feel, you know, Alaska is so big. I just feel so small, like I'm an ant. He said, Kyle, that's when I knew you had it figured out and I didn't have to worry about you anymore. And that was like, I've lived my life off of that. (laughs) So can I ask you a little bit about the ADHD? Absolutely. It's my superpower. Um, And and, and it's great that you look at it in that way. I know that in the schooling system here, it's, it's archaic, seen, probably. It seemed to be more of a burden, and well, I'm just to hear your take on. So it. you know, back okay. when I first was diagnosed with ADHD, well, I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD because they didn't know what it was back in the 70s and 80s. They called it learning disability. Okay, I had a learning disability, and I was put in the special classes. So I was put into private tutors and classroom tutors, and I would go check in on my homeroom, but then I would leave and I'd go to a tutor for half the day. And by the time I got to high school, I'm like, time out. I do not want to do that anymore. I am, I get picked on. I want to just be one of the normal students. Fine, fine. Send me to my tutor. We can work on stuff in, in my study halls. That's fine. But I'm like, I just learn different. I don't, I just don't learn the same way as other people do. I'm not stupid, right? I'm not stupid. I'm I'm very intelligent. I've got a lot of smart things that happen inside of my brain, sometimes too much, right? Like I said, I'm not being braggadocious. And it's one of those things when I finally realized that I wasn't stupid and it wasn't until I got into high school when the same kids that were picking on me in elementary school were now asking me to help them study is when it was my aha moment that, okay, so I actually got prepared better for schooling than they did because it's just learning disability. I, I, I flip my numbers around a little bit. I flip my B's and my D's. I say, I miss reading my, my eye skips over the and, and I don't understand the sentence and I have to reread it. I'm like, oh, there was an and there. That makes more sense, you know, because the ADHD brain doesn't work in that way. But then you put something in front of me and say, take it apart, put it back together. Well, that's okay. I can hyper-focus on that. And that's part of ADHD too. When it comes to diving deep into something and not being distracted, you know, that's a part of ADHD. Now, there is the hyperactivity in young kids. They don't know how to rope it in. I don't know if I was ever a hyperactive kid. You got to remember it was the 80s. It was different. I didn't have computer screens. I didn't have video games. I went out and I rode a bike or I built a tree fort or, oh, it's summertime. It's time to go build a go-kart and race it against the other kids in the neighborhood. My dad had all the tools. I was the house that everybody came and built stuff at. So it was that part of me never really got stamped and labeled like it is nowadays. They, I, I never heard the word ADHD until I was well after college. That's the first time I started hearing that word. So nobody ever said that word to me when I was going through school. It was just, okay, you got to learn disability. You learn a little bit differently. You need a little extra time in your test. You need somebody to handwrite it for you or read it to you. No, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't that severe. But it was one of those things where I, I had a learning disability that people picked on me a lot about. And then as I learned how to study and I had really good teachers in my younger years who I still have a contact with today on, you know, I can still go to my main teacher that really helped me out a lot. And I can knock on her door and I can have a conversation with her to this day, you know, and she's probably retired now. It's been years since I've done that, but I used to do that all the time in my early 20s and 30s. And then I've got teachers that I'm still connected with on Facebook that are retired and moved away or lived in different parts of the country. And I reach out to them every few times a year and I tell them why they were so significant because if it wasn't for them, I would never have understood that there's different styles of learning. And I just have one that's different than the person that can be a bookworm. How do you feel about medication? Mm, some could be good. I believe you still need to take every single case by case. You can't just blanketly say, okay, he says he has ADHD, so it's this medication. My son had was diagnosed with ADHD 
and he was a really low level. He didn't have learning disability. He's sharp as a whip. He memorizes all kinds of stuff. He's super smart, but he had that hyperactive thing going on, right? And his was on the mild side that when we went and got him diagnosed, because by the time he was born, there was such thing as ADHD experts and they could diagnose this. So what our doctor said for him was basically, he said medication could help him, most likely would help him, but also having a counselor could help him. Like having a weekly meeting with somebody that he could bounce things off of that weren't mom and dad, not a therapist per se, but like a mentor, right? So we got him involved in that pretty early on. And then of course, hockey helped a ton having somebody play hockey and he was a goalie and he had all that equipment on and all that feedback because that was part of his diagnosis was he needed that feedback. Um, And then he became a big bass drum in the marching band. And that was like, we never had to think about it again because he had avenues to get that, that out. He still to this day transitions are tough for him. Uh, He's in his early 20s. And to just pounce on him with, hey, we're doing this now. It's like, wait, what? We were supposed to be doing that. Not you just change your mind. You didn't. I'm like, well, I didn't change my mind. We knew it was going to be happening. Well, you didn't tell me and I wasn't ready. I wasn't prepared for it. And that could be even like on like we to this day, when we go on vacations, we kind of give him an outline of what the vacation is going to look like that we're thinking about doing this day and this on this day. And we're going to go to Charleston and we're going to, and if he doesn't get a little bit of an outline, <laughs> it kind of sends him sideways. But then on the other hand, if it's something he likes, he can change his mind in a, in a heartbeat, right? <laughs> so with the paramedic community, do you feel like it's a fairly strong bunch and are they sure. quite similar to you or is it quite diverse? I feel that we all have that innate need to want to help people. At least I hope so. That's like, that's kind of like my ideal thought process of all my uh, fellow paramedics and stuff, but, um, first responders, but it's one of those things where, yeah, there's, I am level 10, 11, a lot of the times. And a lot of people I work with aren't, they're a little bit more subdued. I've learned to be able to wrangle that in. It's a little bit different than working in the hospital. I can be at a level 12, the hospital time, no problem. Like nobody's asked a question because you're so busy in a hospital setting. There's always something to do. Being a paramedic. Yeah. There's something to do when the tones go off and the patient needs your help. There's tons of stuff to do, but that also feeds into our ADHD. I think a lot of us do have ADHD and first responder because we get that rush and we have that 20 minutes of Ah, and then, okay, we're done. And then we have another 20 minutes, ah, you know, or 30 minutes or, you know, we, I live, I, I work out in kind of the country area. So I'm more like two hours, you know, <laughs> it's because I'm sometimes with my patients for two hours before we get them to the hospital and whatnot, or at least the full turnaround time to get back to the shop. But, uh, but yeah, I think when it comes to like the people I work with, I think we ultimately have the same desire. Now, are there some stragglers in there that could care less about patient care? Probably. <laughs> so, you know, they're just doing it for a job, but that's any industry, right? So to finish up, is there any advice that you would like to give any of the listeners? We've covered such a broad range. Of- I know. <laughs> you got Not me even- talking, girl. Dude. <laughs> I, you, you have a lot of books or a movie or two. In you, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Matt Damon, that's who I want to play me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I'm going to hand over to you, ask you, how do you want to wrap this up? I'm an educator. I, I sold medical supplies, so I did sales. You know, I had all these little fingers, these different fingers of my medical career. And I'm still not done, right? I'm still, and I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm developing stuff that's going to be, that I'm going to be able to serve my fellow first responders, even when I'm retired. I'm in the middle of making a 
first responder mental health course because we never get trained how to deal with our own mental health. So that's my next big passion project, right? And so all I have to say is I'm doing a new podcast right now. It's doing really well. Everybody seems to like it that listens to it. Another podcast that I may do and start up later, it may fail. Um, th- th- My point is don't be afraid of failure because failure teaches us so much stuff. Embrace the struggle. I guess that's a good term. So when you feel like you're struggling, there's something good that's going to come out of that struggle. It's going to teach you something that you're going to benefit from later on in your life, right? There was a big struggle when my mom was sick. There was a huge struggle of dealing with her sickness and me having to be the caregiver for her. That was a a two-year struggle. And I came out of that struggle with knowing that I've got the confidence now that I can save my own mother, right? (laughs) I mean, that's so when I go into a situation, I don't ever doubt my skills. I trust my training. I trust the people that trained me and I trust my knowledge. And I go into it with all no doubt that are there times when I'm like, wow, this one's okay. (laughs) I may not be able to put that arm back on, but, you know, but I'm going to do the right thing to help save the life, you know, (laughs) one of those things where when we do have our struggles in our life, don't think that it's over or that it's to a point where you can't do what you're doing. Just just change your path a little bit. Maybe look at something else. Maybe look at teaching people how to do the things that you do at that point in time. And that might find a whole new spark, right? Kyle shows us there are multiple paths we can take to make the impact we seek. And that just like in a maze, there will be dead ends. And that's okay. It's just a sign to turn around and take another path. Now, dear listener, it's your turn. Have you got something to add to the conversation? Then get in touch via the links in the show notes. Whether you have questions, a message of support, or resources that you think might help, we'd love to hear from you. And if by chance, you know someone with a story that will inspire others, be sure to let us know. Your contributions help turn inspiration into action, drive positive change and make life just that little bit better. And if this conversation inspired you to expand your worldview, head to hellohuman.global to join the conversation.